One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is going to catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I want to know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. On today's episode of Never Stand Still, I'm joined by Joanna Coles, the cultural tastemaker and chief content officer at Hearst Magazine. As the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, Joanna led the world's largest women's media brand and has used her extensive experience to deliver constantly award-winning content. Beyond the pages of magazines, Joanna's also the executive producer of The Bold Type, a TV show inspired by her life as an editor, now in its second season on E! And she's also the author of Love Rules, a book for love in the digital age. So, Joanna, welcome to Never Stand Still. It's great to have you. Thank you. But I feel like we should be running around the desk if we're never standing still. Uh, I'm now sitting still. We may do that later on. So, let's see what you have. Yeah, I'm moving my feet a lot. Yeah, okay. So, um, what we're going to try and do uh, today is talk a little bit about your life. You have obviously uh, been so uh, somebody who so many admire. I mean, where you've gotten to. And, uh, you know, everyone knows who's worked so hard to get to the positions that, um, that you uh, are in now, that I'm in, that it's never straightened up to the right. There's always challenges along the way. There's always bumps uh, along the way. Um, but maybe we can get some of your stories Uh, for our audience in terms of lessons you've learned and what's inspired you along the way. And and I'd start out uh, with noting um, that, and I read this somewhere, that you created your first magazine at the ripe old age of 11 years old. Um, Can you talk about that story? Like what inspired you to do that? And did that set you off on your career path or was it just something that at 11 you thought, That would be fun to do. Well, I remember my mother used to get magazines. And when they came, she you couldn't get her out of them. You couldn't get her attention (laughs) because she would be lost in the stories, right? So I became fascinated by them and I loved reading them. And also the stories in them were so grown up that I felt like I was getting a, a chance to fast forward into the future and understand what my life might be and all the kind of interesting things that yeah. would happen uh, as a woman. So I started creating my own magazines with my friend who lived next door and we forced her father and my father to Xerox them. And then <laughs> right. what I think was the beginning of junk mail, we then posted them through the letterboxes of all our unwitting neighbors. Um, but we did actually send one to the Queen of England. That's great. Story. And we got a letter back about two months later from her lady-in-waiting saying Her Majesty had very much enjoyed reading Your Choice, which was our uh-huh. title of our magazine, of course, ironic, because it was nobody's choice to receive right. it, and that she was looking forward to more issues. And honestly, that was all the encouragement I needed. 
So was there a second edition? There was okay. a second edition. I don't think there was a third because by then <laughs> I'd moved on. Um, but I, it, you know, I think sometimes when people are stuck in midlife trying to figure out what they want to do, yeah. um, our childhood holds clues. I loved doing magazines and newspapers and I loved uh, making dolls clothes. And actually when I ended up at Marie Claire editing a fashion magazine, it was like these two great passions in my childhood, which had been ignored in my teenage and 20s, suddenly came to fruition. Hmm. That's interesting. It just made me think of the story my mom always tells about me, um, which maybe explains why I do martial arts so much, is I was like five or six years old. I was sick or something. I had like a cold and so I couldn't go out to play. And I was very disappointed in this. And I saw my best friend out there playing and I yelled apparently from the porch, Jackie, come here, I wanna beat you up. And uh, so- <laughs> Right, <laughs> so I hope maybe your staff explains. aren't listening to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I do think actually as you're growing up, it does, these are like who you are at a very, very early age. Right. And as a parent, you observe that in your own kids too, I think, that you see traits in their personalities coming out. Yeah. Yeah, I, definitely. I see them both of my kids. So you mentioned um, that you moved on from, um, you know, your early career as a, uh, as a magazine creator. But then interestingly enough, you know, it's kind of following that course, but you then worked and having known you a little bit now, it, you work for The Guardian and The Times of London, which are, you know, very conservative, down the middle of the road, you know, uh, fine, you know, newspapers. Um, what drove you there and what did you learn at, from that experience? Uh, curiosity drove me there. I love the opportunity to ask questions. I never believe the answers that people give me. And a newspaper gives you the opportunity yeah. to have to get up to speed on a new subject almost every day. And the thrill of having to write on a deadline is a little bit like doing an exam every day, that it's a test of, can I do this? And every time you would sit down and you think, am I going to be able to do it? So I love that test of self. Yeah. I love having to master a subject quickly, not necessarily in great depth, but you have to master it enough that you understand the basic yeah. tenets of the story. And I liked having a variety. So on a Monday you would go in, you would have no idea what you were going to do. Maybe you would be sent to the high court, maybe something would break and you'd mm -hmm. have to go and cover a bomb. So you were constantly having to adapt. And at the time I thought this skill set isn't very useful for anything, but in fact it turns out it's very useful for our rapidly changing world. Interesting. So you then moved from mainstream uh, of newspapers to becoming the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, which is the largest selling young woman's magazine in the world. Um, what was that transition like? I, I can only imagine that it must have been so different than what you were used to. Well, journalism is journalism. You're always asking questions and you want to ask questions of the celebrities you have on the cover, of the new beauty treatments that we're talking about, of the new fashion designers. So the curiosity never leaves you. Uh, what I think it enabled me to do was bring a fresh approach to women's media at a time when media was under dramatic mm -hmm. uh, change. And 
actually my editing Cosmo um, coincided with the launch of Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg's book, which was really the first time anybody had put together all the research that showed that despite the fact women had been at college for the last 30 years at the same levels uh, as men, we weren't having any progress in leadership roles. And so I was able to funnel a lot of that information. And I like to think of my days at Cosmo as sort of um, stealth feminism. So we were feeding a lot of that into the magazine. And actually, we did the first excerpt of Lean In, 24 pages, because I felt so strongly that young women needed to pay attention to this, because the data doesn't lie. And, you know, women go into college. We've been doing it for 30 years at the same rate as guys. And yet when you compared our careers and our salaries, we were nowhere near parity. And that just felt wrong. Yeah. But and it was because really it the, is wrong. Well, it yep. is wrong. Thank yep. you for acknowledging that. And yep. I know you're incredibly good at PayPal at, at sort of gender equality. Uh, but it's so frustrating as you look out across the culture and you see what's happening in politics and you see what's happening in business. And actually, even since we met, um, the number of women running Fortune 500 companies has gone down. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, when are we going to make progress? Yeah. Well, uh, when I first started talking about this at PayPal, um, and we were looking at our numbers of leadership, women in leadership roles. Um, And I started doing the math that if we just moved our hiring to 50-50, male, 50% female into our vice president and above roles, that the tyranny of the math was such that it would take 20 years before we would get to 50-50 in general. And I thought to myself, well, that's just ridiculous. And I think um, this tyranny of math right now um, is such that I I saw something in like International Women's Day for uh, at the current course of speed for there to be equal pay and that kind of thing, it could take like 50 to 70 years. Yeah, robots are going to be doing our jobs before that happens, right? And, so, and robots will probably get paid more than women. Uh, well, I hope that <laughs> robots like don't take all of our jobs away. Well, that's another thing that we can talk about uh, going forward. But I do think that we now need to, uh, as leaders, all of us, make sure that we don't allow the journey of the math to get in the way of the progress. Which means that we have to, you know, we have to lean in more than just 50-50. And by the way, though, the thing about it is it's not just the right thing to do and a nice thing to do. Teams that are more diverse perform better. Of course. It's as simple as that. Of course, right? so, like, not doing it is in nobody's uh, own self-interest. It's the right thing to go do. Well, and you also have to ask, why would you want to run a business with a leadership team that doesn't represent your customer base, right? Or or whoever you're talking to. It makes zero sense. In what world would you do that? Um, And I'm talking, of course, about all women. I know there's a lot of feeling that white women only talk about white women. This includes all women. And also, when you go to a company and, or as as a woman, when you're in a room that is more diverse, you feel... You, you feel more relaxed. There's a different conversation that goes yeah, absolutely. on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you, you mentioned this, that the world is changing, and certainly the world of media is changing dramatically. 
And you have the responsibility of being the chief content officer across Hearst, which is a gigantic role um, and one that really touches and influences so many people uh, as a result of the choices that you make. As we're seeing things move from print to kind of electronic forms, mm-hmm. um, obviously that changes distribution and other things, but is there, how has that change affected how you think about the role of content, how you think about uh, the role of magazines, uh, et cetera? Is it changing your views? Well, it's changing my views because everybody wants to be a publisher now. Every company wants to reach directly to its consumers. And not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the skill set. It can be expensive to build a content team. Hearst is very good at partnering with people. I mean, we partner with Oprah Winfrey for her magazine, with Food Network, with HGTV. Um, We've most recently partnered with Airbnb. So what we're, and we have an Airbnb magazine Mm. now, which is a different kind of travel magazine. It's not about tourism, it's about what it's like to go to a culture and really embed in the culture, even for a couple of days, and feel like you might live there. Uh, So what I'm spending my time doing is, is creating new partnerships with Uh, all sorts of companies, especially some big tech companies who want to have a physical manifestation of their brand in terms of a magazine because Mm -hmm. that represents your values in a slightly different way than pure digital interface. Um, And also constantly thinking about what are the ideas that people want to read more about? How do we present stories in different ways? Is it video? Is it podcast? Is it what we've coined the term listenables, little bits of content? It doesn't mean you have to spend 45 minutes, but you might want to digest something in a snackable 90 seconds, you know, our equivalent of of a Dorito, if you like. Um, So we're constantly (laughs) thinking about new ways to share ideas and media people are are, are everybody now. Everybody wants to have a voice and everybody wants to be heard. And so how can we help people be heard effectively? Have you found that content um, is sort of shrinking in terms of it's like more soundbite than deep investigative or deep stories that may be longer form. Has that changed as well due to digital or? I think there's enormous hunger for real long form good journalism. What I think is there's a lot of crap out there and people are constantly scrolling. The um, Statue of Liberty is 304 feet tall. That is the amount of content that people scroll through a day on their devices. So you know you can't possibly absorb that amount of content, right? So what I'm seeing is, Mm. is, is... twofold. There's enormous market for just fun, light, silly stuff. And then there is huge hunger for properly reported, really researched, analytical, long-form journalism. And we do both. Uh, the stuff I enjoy the most is the is the high-quality stuff because it's more fun to make and you feel like you have a bigger impact. Yeah. Um, but we don't want to deny that people have enormous fun sharing memes and it's sometimes a meme gets to the heart of something in the yeah. way nothing else can. Yeah. It must be a little bit harder, too, to sort of break through based on everybody's a publisher, et cetera. Um, 
It they, is, although I would say that where we are lucky at Hearst is we have some of the best media brands and at a yeah. time when there is zero trust in yeah. anything now. I mean, trust is probably the currency that is most threatened by what's going on in our culture right now. When you have a media brand like Town & Country or like Esquire or like yeah. Good Housekeeping that stood the test of time, you know that people trust it. So when Good Housekeeping gives you a seal of approval, when it writes a story, yep. it actually means something. Yeah. Whereas little media brands that pop up overnight, it's hard for them to build that trust. The, the, the um, point of entry and the cost of entry is cheaper, but it's harder to build trust. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a great point. I think curation in this time of massive amounts of information, um, it's predicted that in the next couple of years, the amount of information created on the internet um, will be the equivalent of 25 billion libraries of Congress. Right. Each year. Right. Each year. I'm, so, still, I'm still working my way through the first library <laughs> yeah, of Congress, exactly. right? And I may never get to the end yeah. of it. So I just feel like that curation and, and the potential, I love the idea of trust mm -hmm. being an important element of how we can curate um, all oh, the mass amount of information that comes flying at us. Well, and you have to be able to trust who's curating it for you. So I see the role of human editors yeah. as becoming even more vital as we go into our new age, where, where truth and trust uh, are at a minimum. And yet you can't have a real you can't have a democratic culture without trust and without truth because you have to agree on certain things to make decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So if I play off the truth and trust, but move that into maybe personal relationships. Um, it's a bit of a segue, but yeah, let's do it. It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> I, I actually feel good about it. Um, so um, you've written uh, and published recently Love Rules. Um, and it's sort of uh, I've now through chapter one and uh, I've seen uh uh, all of what you're putting out there, but it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a guide, but it's sort of like, what is love and relationships like in a, a digital uh, world? And you and I were talking about it. There's, you know, every day, I think there's something like 1.4 billion swipes on Tinder. Um, there, it's just, a, there's a different world uh, in terms of how people are connecting uh, to each other. As you and I mentioned, you know, about 25% of all teens have a best friend they've never met, um, that they've just met virtually through other friends. And so I find it fascinating that you wrote this book. Was there, and I think it's incredibly appropriate for the time that we live in right now, what inspired you about it? What lessons do you bring out in the book? Well, what inspired me to write it was this sense that uh, people are lonely, that they have devices, that they have virtual friends, but a virtual friend is not as valuable as an actual friend. Now, it doesn't mean they can't be incredibly useful. It doesn't mean if you live in a small rural area and you want to connect with people, you shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Fa fantastic. But let's not pretend that a virtual friend is as useful as a real friend who turns up when they don't want to, who listens to you when you're being very boring, <laughs> and then you get to do the same back for them, right? And friendship. Yeah 
friendship, actual friendship, is about doing things with people, building a history, having experiences, and being able to challenge each other and listen to each other. And that takes time. And we live in a world where everything's been speeded up, and yet I sense there is this huge craving for intimacy and for connection, which our devices in theory allow us to do, but actually don't. In Britain, they've just appointed a loneliness minister because it's such an epidemic. Mm. And what I'm concerned about is that we spend our lives on our devices and we're never going to give our devices up. We have to figure out how to live with them, but we spend our lives on our devices observing, spectating other people's lives at the expense of becoming participants in our own life. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a... um generational, um, big generational difference. Like for me, I probably have close friends, less than a handful of close friends in my life. Um, my daughter claims, well, on Facebook, she has like 2,400 friends, but she claims when I challenge her on that, that only 600 are really close friends. Um, so do you think that, um, there's just a difference generationally, or do you think that the, how people define friendship has changed? Well, I think how people define friendship has clearly changed, and it's almost a perversion of the word friend yeah. to think yeah. that you can have 1,500 friends. And, w- and we're living at a time where we are encouraged to build up armies of, of Facebook friends or followers or fans that we've never met who's liking what we're putting out there is supposed to be as valuable to us as having a drink or a Chinese meal with a friend. Yeah. Uh, and clearly it's not. And yet I didn't feel anybody was saying this. Now, social media are incredibly useful to sell things, mm-hmm. to put a certain image of yourself out there. But it's not actually who you are. And I, in the I think book... that's a great point, by the way. Well, yep. in the book, I, I talk to the cyber psychologist Mary Aitken, who's, who's very ahead of our digital behavior, very thoughtful about it. And there isn't that much science around our digital behavior mm-hmm. because it's still very new. And she talks about the fact that you have your online self who is completely different from your actual self. And people create these... Um, idealized sense of selves who are witty and clever and funny. And what I learned from talking to hundreds of people who've been dating online um, is that when you meet someone in real life that you've spent a lot of time flirting with on text, they were often utterly different and very disappointing. And listen, 25% of marriages now have come from people meeting online, dating apps online. I think they are wonderful, wonderful things, but you have to use them really carefully. Yeah. But those dating apps then just set you up in real life, and that's how they move forward. Yeah, I think. They're, they're a tool. You yeah. know, they're an arrow in your quiver. They can't. Yeah. They can't do the work for you of of being the relationship. And relationships are difficult. They're hard. Uh, just as picking up the phone is is hard, and talking to someone on the phone is hard. You talk over each other. You can't hear each other properly. Someone's interrupting. There's a yeah. dog in the distance. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you can't try. Uh, and. And, you know, somehow I think we've got this idea that life is supposed to be easy and perfect and we know it's none of those things and it's the imperfections that make it so interesting. It's just you don't always know that. Yeah. I'm going to segue off of that as well because you're just perfectly allowing me that sort of like life is imperfect. This, um, So this show is Never Stand Still and it comes from my trainer um, who 
every morning reminds me of the fact that if you stand still in front of him, he'll hit you. Um, so I do want to meet your trainer because I, yeah. I, I want to have one session with him because I want to understand your fascination with being hit every yeah, morning. I can't wait to set you up with him. I'm terrified. I'm already really very, very nervous. This, yeah. Right. We'll I think it might be good it. for me, though. Yeah. All right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We can do it here or in California. Uh, either wherever. Place. Okay. So, um, but his thing is uh, also if you're going to get into a confrontation, there's always, you're always going to be hit in, in that. And so, you know, his big philosophy is avoid fights where, wherever possible. Um, but in life, we always, you know, get hit in some way. Um, all of us have. Uh, all of us have, I think, suffered, you know, personal tragedies um, and have had failures at business that have hurt and um, and have been difficult to overcome. Are there certain points in your life or your career where you feel like it was a particularly difficult moment for you? And is there a way for our listeners to understand like what some of those were and how you kind of got back up and maybe learn from them and move forward? Well, one of the things I developed was what I call my two-hour rule, which is where I'm allowed to have, when something goes wrong or when numbers come back and they're not what you want right. uh, or not what you expected, I would allow myself two hours to feel absolutely terrible. And, um, <laughs> you know, that sometimes <laughs> that means you leave the office, you go for a right. walk, you uh, think about things and you take two hours to go as low as you feel you can go. And then you're like, right, the two hours is over now, get back up. And I, that's what I've said to my kids. It's like you're allowed two hours to feel really shitty and really terrible and right. acknowledge that this sucks. Yeah. And then you have to get back out there and do whatever you can to mitigate it. And also you have to keep looking forward, right? People often ask me, what are my regrets? I have no idea what my regrets are because I can't remember them. If you dwell on them, they'll pull you down. You just have to create forward momentum, which is my equivalent of your trainers never yeah. stand still. It's yeah. like, what is the next grappling hook to the future that you can sort of pull yourself forward with? And I'm always thinking about the next thing. So if the current thing doesn't go in the direction I'm hoping, I've got the next thing to, to look forward to. Yeah. And um, what is it that gives you that energy and that drive? I, one of the things that... Um, I love about you is that you were like one of the first to put like the treadmill desk or, you know, a standing desk. Um, and um, it just, it symbolizes kind of like, to me, all the energy that you have and what you bring to this. So like, what are, what are those things that you tap inside yourself that allow you to continue to move? I think curiosity. I'm incredibly interested about the world. I find people endlessly interesting. You can't find someone that doesn't have a great story. You alluded yeah. to the fact everybody has personal tragedy. If I'm sitting next to someone at a dinner or a lunch, I'm like, what, what's the story? What's the thing around mm -hmm. which this person has built themselves? Yeah. You know, as a challenge, if they're really, really dull, you're like, I'm going to get it out of them. Yeah. So I think um, I just have enormous <laughs> curiosity about how things work, about where we're going, about how I can contribute and um, and I, I'm an extrovert, I'm a people person, I get my energy from other people, my nightmare is being isolated, you know, I'm the person that if you put me into, um, uh, what is it called, solitary, solitary confinement, confinement yeah. you know, I would wither and die within 20 minutes. Oh. 
<laughs> no, I would. I, I like other people. I like energy from other people. That's what is fun for me. Yeah, that's great. Joanna, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, and, my pleasure. Uh, I hope we didn't stand still. No, no, we didn't. I think we covered a ton of territory there. Thanks so much. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Thank you.